now it's time for News with My Dad, a show where we talk about the news with my dad. And in Studio Live, playing the role of my dad is, in fact, my dad, the star of our show, Joe Smith. Pop, how you doing? Three-hour sleep last night. This is a show we talk about the news. We try to talk about the important stuff. Sometimes we talk about the unimportant stuff. When it's unimportant, we try to say so. We typically take turns. Dad usually takes the first turn. Pop, do you have a shout-out? I have two shout-outs. Go ahead. Okay, no music. First shout-out. I'm shouting out for the veterans of Foreign Wars Chief and other veteran organizations who have demanded that DDT apologize for denigrating, downplaying, dissing the fact of the concussion suffered by over 30 of our military from the Iranian rockets. He poo-pooed that. owes them an apology. And second, I want to shout out for Louise Linton, who is Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin's wife, who, a couple of days after Mnuchin dissed Greta Thunberg, made fun of her, put out a post on Instagram saying, I stand with Greta. We need to significantly reduce our use of fossil fuels. Now, it has since been taken down, which I suspect may be because her husband got all upset, but I give credit to Louise Linton for speaking up. All right, Dad. Where do you want to start? Do you want to start well, we, with we impeachment? Gotta, we, you want to start with Kobe start, Bryant? we got to start with Kobe, I think, if for no other reason that it just literally dominated yesterday's news. It just dominated the news on, on every newscast, and especially in the sports area, ESPN canceled everything that it had planned for ESPN2 the entire afternoon and devoted it to interviews and comments about Kobe. And I confess, I, I did not realize the, the extent of Kobe's reach, how, how great an effect he has had as a human being since he retired, what is it, four years ago? whatever it was, really, really quite remarkable. Kobe Bryant, 41, his daughter Gianna, 13, died in a helicopter crash over at Calabasas, California on Sunday. Won five NBA championships, made 18 all-star teams, retired following the 2015-2016 seasons. His two jerseys, number eight and number 24, both retired by the Los Angeles Lakers. Uh, his daughter Gianna was a rising basketball player herself, had been seen attending NBA games was traveling on a private S-76 helicopter. Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department has confirmed nine people on board died in the crash. Original report said five. And yeah, Dad, the I mean, he came in as in 17 years old, enter, entering the NBA draft with an SAT score high enough to go to an Ivy League school, went straight to the NBA uh, earlier in a time when that wasn't the kind of thing that would prompt you to become the number one pick. Got traded. Uh, that pick got traded to the Lakers. Uh, became the rekindling of that franchise. Played 20 years, first guard ever to play 20 years. Uh, the uh, was arrested for uh, sexual assault. Uh, was 
ended in a civil compromise on that matter. That is also part of the legacy and one of the things that... And, and, and I would note an apology that was actually an apology because so many apologies aren't real apologies, but his really was. He has become a, an ambassador for women's basketball. He was huge in China. When you talk about his reach, uh, the, he was globally... He was a global phenomenon, right? He'd be hugely famous in China, in part because the Lakers are famous across uh, the world, and he did stay with one team for 20 years. Uh, he did uh, his... I'm a basketball nerd, and I pay attention to the advanced metrics debates. And there was significant debate about whether or not he was an efficient basketball player because he shot a lot of mid-range jumpers. I know this is not that interesting to most people, but the but what it belied was that when it came in, when he got into the playoffs, that same shot, where, whereas, you know, three-pointers, people would start creeping up on you a little bit, got harder to get to the basket, he could still get off an 18-foot or 20-foot or almost at will, and his shooting percentage would dip a little bit less in the playoffs from other players, and ended up winning five rings, uh, ended up winning an Oscar after his retirement. Dad, any other reflections? I mean, it was, I know lots of people my age, I know lots of people who are basketball fans, I know lots of people in the entertainment industry, I know a lot of people who or Los Angelinos, etc., really sad about it, and others. And I saw a divergence of feelings and opinions that were being shared, including those who wanted to remember his victim. Uh, any other reflections, Pop? Yeah, I, as a pilot, I have a reflection. We don't know what the cause was, but what we do know is that the weather was so bad, the visibility was so so small, that the Los Angeles Police Department had grounded its helicopters, which makes me suspect that Kobe was a victim of what in the aviation world we call get-there-itis. Get-there-itis is the thing that makes people take off when the weather is such, when the conditions are such, that they really should not take off at all. And, but they do it, and they do it often because the, the pilot's judgment is overruled by the client. And uh, I just think conditions that are dicey. Oh, let's get there quick before they get dicey, or let's get there quick so we don't yeah, get Oh, grounded. surely we can make it anyhow. You know, let's just do it. So tragedy in California. The Grammys happened last night and ended up being opened by a tribute to Kobe Bryant. And that one of the reflections I had, and this was maybe the one, I don't know, lukewarm take I'll offer, is that I see a lot of what's happening in America as a manifestation of the media landscape. You know that every time we talk about the dynamics of the impeachment, I talk about, nearly every time, I talk about the media landscape. And I don't think you can separate the Trump phenomenon from the media landscape. He is the progeny of it rather than its parent. And I look also as an example of that at the Kobe Bryant the death of Kobe Bryant and the aftermath of his death that there was a huge divergence you know we're we try to support the numbers the radio station and I had a chance to listen to some of the conversation that was happening in the black community not just on the numbers but on social media 
had a chance to watch the Grammys and I had a chance to look at my Facebook feed where I follow and have you know lots of Facebook friends who are active and very vocal feminists. And I'm not saying it was two different worlds or three different worlds or four different worlds, but they were worlds, worlds, that, worlds that overlapped rather than those that were in alignment. That in the Grammys you had so many people who were so inspired by this guy and that uh, most that wanted that, that spent all of their attention talking about his uh, his discipline, his greatness, his uh, commitment to not only his own craft, but then later his change of career, and then later even supporting the careers of others. And then you had in uh, on social media also people writing really thoughtful pieces about yeah, compassion allows for mourning. Uh, and also, let's think about some of the totality of their conduct. And also, let us remember victims of our culture and of individual conduct. And it was a significant divergence. And it reminded me, it reminded me of one of the challenges of trying to build a pluralistic progressive movement and a pluralistic progressive media, the, the, the divergence in those stories. I compare that to the monotheistic nature of Fox News and Rush Limbaugh, etc., where there is not so much entirely divergent uh, communications and divergent worlds on important not so events much of public affairs. There isn't any. And well, I also think we should acknowledge the passing of Jim Lehrer, who was a giant of a journalist who was a what you want a journalist to be and he he died at a at a ripe old age last week and he is missed dad i've got to get quickly to the john bolton bombshell and it is a bombshell i think you're right that yesterday's news was dominated by the death of an athlete what is facing democracy right now is the impeachment of a president and the assumption that no matter what facts are offered those facts will be bottled up and even if those facts weren't bottled up that there aren't 20 u.s senators who are registered republicans who will listen to those facts in any important way to see to it that any accountability were held by the president. And the question now really becomes, are there at least four who are willing to hear Bolton? And how can they say no when what has come out is that in his book he is apparently prepared to say, yeah, the president said to him that the holding up of the money to Ukraine was to coerce Ukraine to make an announcement about an investigation. The New York Times reported just yesterday, reported on Sunday. And, and, and had, had it not been for Kobe, this would have dominated the news. That Bolton made a series of very big Ukraine-related claims in his unpublished manuscript that is slated to be released in March. Here are some, and this is according to the Washington Post, uh, as well as the New York Times. Uh, Bolton writes that he heard Trump say explicitly that the withholding, excuse me, of military aid would continue until Ukraine announced an investigation involving the Bidens, implicating Trump directly in a quid pro quo for the first time and contradicting the Trump team's defense. This is not secondhand. This is not somebody sitting at a lunch and hearing a phone call on the other side of the line uh, while Gordon Sondland is sitting there. He also writes that Secretary of State 
Uh, Mike Pompeo said privately there was nothing to the Trump claims ambas- uh, Trump team's claims that then ambassador to Ukraine Marie Yovanovitch was corrupt, suggesting this was just indeed a smear campaign and that Pompeo recognized it as such, even as he did not defend Yovanovitch publicly. Bolton also writes he raised concerns about Giuliani's efforts in Ukraine with William Barr, the attorney general, after Trump's July call with Ukraine's president, despite the Justice Department saying Barr learned about the call in mid-August. This says not only was William Barr implicated in what was going on, but also that he lied about it. Ann Bolton writes that acting White House Chief of Staff Milk Mulvaney was present for one of Donald Trump's calls with Giuliani about Yovanovitch, even though Mulvaney has told associates that he stayed out of those conversations to protect Trump and Giuliani's attorney-client privilege. So again, this not only implicates Mick Mulvaney, but makes clear that he lied about it. These are enormous claims. These are enormous claims by someone who is no lefty, by someone who is no Adam Schiff or Nancy Pelosi friend, by someone who is no regular MSNBC contributor, by nobody who's been on this show, for instance. This is by uh, John Bolton. This is by one of the biggest hawks in American foreign policy in the last 50 years, by somebody who was in the Trump administration. And, Dad, my big question is, why are we finding out this now rather than finding this out four weeks ago? Well, it all starts, of course, with the stonewalling of the White House and DDT against allowing witnesses to appear, telling witnesses that they're not supposed to. And the, the dilemma that the House faced over whether or not to wait until the court process played out, which I believe no matter how far right the majority of the Supreme Court is right now, they could not have they could not have brought themselves to deny the constitutional requirement for the House to have the right to call witnesses when they are considering impeaching the president. But it would have gone on so long, it would have got, even on a fast track, would have got well into the spring and maybe into the summer, which then would really help the Republicans' principal argument, which is the one they apparently are making, is that all this is is an attempt to overturn an election, and since the election is coming, we should let the election decide. And If if you can trust the election, that's the big challenge. But if the very claim is that this president is engaged manipulating elections, then it's hard to say, oh, yeah, well, just let him manipulate the election, and then that'll help us resolve whether or not he should manipulate elections. Yep. By the way, any time somebody dies in a plane or helicopter crash, it makes me nervous. It just always makes me nervous. Like when, you know, when Ron Brown, I made me nervous. When Paul Wellstone made me nervous. When John F. Kennedy Jr. made me more than nervous. And the book coming out, the, the people who are just pretty much absolutely convinced that he was killed. Uh, the uh, so you, I, Is that you're kidding me? I, n- not not saying they have evidence of that, but just there's people who just really strongly oh feel that Oh, my goodness, that is the silliest thing. That, that, that tragic death is a... We, I, I understand that you okay. say you say as a pilot, you've made that you made that case for. But any time we get, any time somebody dies from a from air travel, just always makes me a little bit nervous. Dad, we have heard now the Democrats' opening arguments. We are now hearing the Republican Republican opening arguments. Their defense uh, it includes essentially a three step. First of all, uh, 
uh, go to motive. Hey, Democrats just want to beat Trump. Second, uh, he didn't do anything wrong. Third, if he did anything wrong, uh, it's not impeachable anyhow. That's their basic case, yes? Yeah, if he, if he did something wrong, it's, it's not bad enough to kick him out. Is there anything, I mean, I guess now we wait. Now we look to see if there will be a motion that can get 51 votes in the U.S. Senate to allow for new evidence and to allow for John Bolton's testimony. And with Lev Parnas, and it was one thing and it was just Lev Parnas. It was one thing when it was just this guy. I don't know. Who is this guy? And, and does he know the president? No, he doesn't know the president. Well, except he obviously knows the president. He was in a 90-minute meeting with the president. There's a video of it. But, you know, is he that important? Is he that famous? Is he that credible? He seems like kind of a shady character. But now you have John Bolton also. You have mo- like two witnesses who, by the way, are, are more direct witnesses than anybody that was in the House trial. This isn't just like, it, it, and we shouldn't just cheapen it to say, oh, it's, it's a little more information. It's just, a, it's just adding to stuff we already know. No, no, no. These are witnesses that have more direct evidence than anybody that had, was given access e- even, to by the House even or more, to the House. Even more than that. There's an audio tape. There's an audio. In fact, it's actually it's a videotape, which part of the time the video is just blank stuff, but part of the time makes clear that it was going on during a a dinner which Parnas attended with the president, which eliminates his claim that he didn't doesn't know them, but also makes it clear what he that he was talking about getting rid of the ambassador to Ukraine. Trump is enacting his broader travel van, travel ban, excuse me, expected to announce an expanded travel ban this week, restricting immigration from Nigeria, Myanmar, Sudan, Belarus, Eritrea, uh, Kyrgyzstan, Tanzania, per multiple reports. Uh, also dead, five confirmed cases of coronavirus and thousands more expected in China. Coronavirus seems a little dicey. Yeah. While we're talking about his, his uh, immigration policy, the already the, the administration is also telling women, if you are pregnant, don't come to the United States until after the baby is born so that women can no longer come here for the purpose of having their baby here and therefore having their baby being an American citizen. So that, 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 that is an interesting thing. And while, while we're talking about DDT, on the 22nd of this month, that's five days ago, he, may, he put out 142 tweets. 142. Now, I don't tweet I, I think you may tweet, what, what would you think would be the typical amount of time that it would take to put out a single tweet? Typically, what would you expect to spend? On I don't that? know. Let's call it a minute. I mean, you could do them faster, but you could also do them slower. But you'd, you know, if you wanted to think about it at all, let's call it a minute. A minute. I mean, it, it, to be clear, it's as fast as you can type with your thumbs and click send. So it doesn't have to take that long. But, but, but if but, you really wanted to craft it, if you really wanted to think about what you wanted to say. You at least you have to think about what you're going to say. Sure. And I think a minute, that would be the minimum amount of time that it would take. So you probably spent three hours tweeting. Yeah. Yeah. At, at least. It blows my mind. At least. And what was occupying his mind before right. and after that was right. not preparing for Davos. When does he take the time to be president? 
Well, let's get ready for election news. Uh, we've got a bunch of election news to go, but I do want to say that China has been now saying that if it gets to the hundreds of thousands in China, if they don't quell uh, coronavirus in China, there is a threat that it could be a global pandemic. The government is Beijing, in Beijing broadened an extraordinary quarantine to more than 50 million people. It's enforced by a travel ban in 16 cities uh, in the central Hubei province. Uh, but why don't we get to election news? Well, Dad, Andrew Yang is qualified for the New Hampshire primary debate. After failing to qualify yes, for is. a debate in Iowa earlier this month, Yang has earned a spot in the next Democratic primary debate in New Hampshire, February 7th. He joins Joe Biden, Buttigieg, Klobuchar, Sanders, Steyer, and Elizabeth Warren. This one's going to be hosted by ABC News and Apple News. Again, candidates needed to hit 5% in four polls or 7% in two polls in New Hampshire and receive donations from at least 225,000 individuals. Candidates can automatically qualify by winning at least one pledge delegate to the Democratic Convention out of the Iowa caucuses. Yang hit the polling mark in two separate polls released Sunday, hit the donor mark long ago. Which means that there's a minority of folks out there who really like the idea of getting a thousand bucks every month for the rest of their lives. Elizabeth Warren won the Des Moines Register endorsement, uh, sought after endorsement that Hillary Clinton won in the previous election. Uh, one of the broadest reach, I think it's the broadest reach newspaper in Iowa, which is the first state. A week out, Bernie Sanders opens a lead in Iowa ahead of the Iowa caucus. The New York Times said Bernie Sanders is consolidating support from liberals and benefiting from divisions among more moderate candidates. Per the Times, Siena College poll, Sanders at 25 percent, Buttigieg 18, Biden 17, Warren 15, Klobuchar 8, and then Steyer and Yang down at 3. Amy Klobuchar said on Meet the Press on Sunday that she will support the nominee, but said that Democratic Senator Bernie Sanders, excuse me, formerly independent Senator Bernie Sanders should not be, quote, leading the ticket, end quote. Here's her quote. I think Senator Sanders' idea of kicking 149 people off the 149 million Americans off their current health insurance in four years is wrong. That's why I don't think he should be leading the ticket. I think I should be leading the ticket because my ideas are much more in sync with the bold ways of getting things done. Both Sanders and Klobuchar have surged in recent weeks. While Klobuchar's surge has garnered newspaper endorsements and slight upticks in polling, Sanders is glad to the front of the 2020 package leading in both Iowa and New Hampshire. And there's been four times where a Democratic candidate has won both Iowa and New Hampshire, and all four times that person has ended up be being the Democratic nominee. Now, I think this could be a time that even if somebody did win in both of those states, if Bernie Sanders won in both of those states, I don't think he's guaranteed to be the nominee. No, he's definitely not. Why do you think the dynamic this time, and I have a couple thoughts, but why do you think the dynamic this t time could be different? Well, I think it's different in part because matching the fervent support of the Bernie or nobodies, there are a large number of folks who, anybody but Bernie, and 25% is only 25%. That means that 75% wants somebody else. I think about it a little bit like I think about sports stuff. I apologize. Sometimes I think about sports stuff. But... When they say, you know, no team has ever come back from a 3 nothing deficit. And very few teams come back from 3-1 to one deficits. Now, some of that is because it's hard to win three or four games in a row. But some of it's also because if you got beat three times in a row, 
the other team's probably better than you. Now, generally, if the candidate, if there's a candidate who wins Iowa, New Hampshire, that demonstrates that they are clearly the front runner in the race. Bernie Sanders is clearly one of the front runners in the race. But Biden is a little bit later. Uh, some of his strength comes a little bit later. His strength might be more in Super Tuesday. His strength might be coming more South Carolina. So it's and Nevada. So it's hard to say that I could imagine potentially the dynamic being a little bit different. But that said, if Sanders continues, if he goes from, you know, heart attack to first place and ends up winning both Iowa and New Hampshire, he could very much indeed become the Democratic nominee. But it's important to remember that under the Democratic nomination rules, the winner of the primary, uh, of the caucuses, I should say, in Iowa does not mean that the winner gets all of Iowa's delegates. It just means that the, quote, winner, close quote, gets more delegates than anybody else. But if, for example, a week from tomorrow morning, we wake up to the results of the caucuses, which are happening a week from today, and it turns out that the number of delegates that everybody has is exactly commensurate with the poll results that you just recited, it will mean that Bernie Sanders did not get 75% of the delegates. Then goes on to New Hampshire, and there is a primary. Same thing. If he comes out with the biggest number, he doesn't get them all. He just gets more than everybody else, but that still means that there are a significant majority of delegates who do not support Bernie Sanders, and I think that can go on for a while. It could easily, as a matter of fact, go on all the way to California, where because the California number of delegates is so huge, that that would ultimately tip the scale. It's just eight days until Iowa. It's only seven days. Seven time. days to Iowa. Eight, day, eight days from this moment, we'll know we'll the results. We'll know what's going on. It's 15 days until New Hampshire, 26 days until Nevada, 33 days until South Carolina, and just 36 days, just a month and a little less than a week until Super Tuesday. And after Super Tuesday, we're probably going to know who the Democratic nominee is. Probably. We've been talking about this for a while. It still seems like it's you know, in the offings at some point, but it's kind of happening now. Yep. It's kind of happening right now. Washington Post with two interesting articles. Uh, one is that two new studies are showing that racial anxiety, and I'm quoting, is the biggest driver of support for Trump. As David Roberts wrote in Vox at the end of last year, are Trump voters driven by economic anxiety or racial resentment? Yes, but more recent data is bringing the drivers of Trumpism into sharper focus, and what we are seeing is striking racial attitudes, may play a larger role in opinions towards Trump than once thought. Economic concerns don't seem to have as much of an impact on support for Trump. The first was a Hamilton College political scientist, Philip Klinker, uh, Klinkner, excuse me, analyzing data from the 2016, uh, 2016 election and a study, uh, and in a combination of studies now saying that maybe it's a duh, maybe it's an aha, maybe it's an obvious, maybe it's, oh, geez, maybe it's I wish they'd be covering this not only here but also elsewhere, that racial attitudes are the biggest drivers. As Ta-Nehisi Coates said, Donald Trump is the first white president. Obviously, he didn't mean the first white president, white male to be elected president, but maybe the first one to be elected so clearly based on and because of and driven by white identity 
identity as exclusive to other identities. Uh, Pop, any other election news you've got? Well, on that point, I, I confess to having a speech that, that I always yearn to have somebody make it I would have loved to make myself, which would go something like this. It would be close to when the Olympics are. And we would say, the Olympics are a wonderful experience. Now, when the, when the contestants from Japan come, we know that they are all going to have black hair, unless they have dyed it. And they are going to have slanted eyes, and they're going to have a somewhat brown skin. You're making me nervous here, Pablo. Uh, when, when the, when the, can, when the uh, uh, contestants from Scandinavia come, they are all very likely to be blonde, Caucasian, white people. When they come from an African country, they're almost certainly. Oh, I should say, and, and the Japanese folks are going to have names like Osaka and Yamauchi and Kigawa. And the Scandinavians are going to have names like Olsen or Nelson. The, when the Africans come, you can expect they are going to have black hair and dark skin, and their names are going to be African names. When the folks come from a, a former part of the Soviet Union. They are going to have Slavic names. And when they come from America, they are going to be, they're going to have black hair and slanted eyes and brown skin and names like Kagawa. They are going to have blonde hair and names like Olsen and Nelson. They are going to have black hair and black skin and African names. And that is one of the great wonderments of this wonderful country that we do not send to the Olympics based upon what your ancestors were. We send people to the Olympics on the basis of what they have accomplished. And in America, you can be whatever you can accomplish regardless of your racial heritage. And that's just such a marvelous thing. Good morning, everybody. You're listening to X-Ray FM. I'm Jefferson Smith. It is news with my dad. We are in the midst of an election, and by that, I don't just mean a presidential election. In fact, every listener here will have significantly more impact on what happens to the city council, what happens to the state legislature, what happens to statewide races, including the second highest constitutional position in this state, which is Secretary of State. You will have more impact on those races than you ever will on a presidential campaign. One of the major candidates for Secretary of State is with us this morning. His name is Mark Hass. He represents Washington County in the state Senate, and he's with us now. Senator, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning, Jefferson. Who are you and why are you running? My name is Mark Hass. I'm a state senator. I've been in the legislature for 18 years. Uh, I'm running for the same reason I originally got into public service, that um, when you grow up in Oregon, you're instilled with certain values. You take care of the land, you take care of people, you take care of the environment, and you certainly take care of schools. Well, I left for a while, but when I came back, I was a journalist at KATU, and all during the 90s, while I was reporting on horse fires and courts and trials and all the things that journalists report on, I also uh, became a keen observer of what was going on with Oregon, and it was growing so fast, and some of those values that I grew up with, and a lot of others did too, 
seemed to be eroding. And then we had those property tax cuts in the 90s that, that uh, put a death knell onto schools. And so I ran in the legislature. I got there in 2001. And that all culminated, uh, I guess, my quest to help schools uh, occurred just last year with the passage of the Student Success Act, which will raise more than a billion dollars uh, a year for uh, education to do things like uh, shrink class sizes. And so uh, that felt like a pretty good capstone to a legislative career. That bill kind of, in my mind, righted the ship from what happened back in the 1990s. It was it's going to be the largest infusion of money to Oregon schools in the history of our state. And I'm very, very proud of that. And so, it, like I said, it, it felt like a capstone. And while I was in the legislature, I had an opportunity to kind of specialize in the very quirky constitutional responsibilities of the Secretary of State, namely elections, redistricting, and auditing. And so I feel very qualified to take this next step, and I'm having a great time meeting people in this campaign, and I'm looking for people who want to engage on these issues. I have six or seven different proposals to uh, enhance this office. Jefferson, we've had four secretaries of state in the last four years and this office has been diminished. They're all, those four are all good people, but if you're just going to be a, a caretaker and, re, and, and fill out the last 14 months of somebody's term, you're not going to bring the same kind of long-term focus or long-term planning or energy that I will. So that's why I'm running. So let's pick up on one of those you said. I heard you say redistricting. I remember, I remember it was pretty vivid, uh, having a conversation with former Secretary of State and former Governor Barbara Roberts. She said that appointing Phil Keesling to become Secretary of State was, and I'm quoting, the worst mistake she made as governor, end quote. And her view was because of the path, it included the path that Phil took on redistricting. And that in her view, he did, well, I don't, I don't want to put any further words in her mouth. There are critiques of Phil Keesling and how he redistricted in 2010. There are supporters of yours who might appreciate your bipartisan take as a legislator, how would you approach redistricting and what would you say to voters in the Democratic primary who are ner nervous that you would draw lines that wouldn't maintain Democratic control of the legislature? Well, I would say, first of all, uh, the Secretary of State who did redistricting in 2001, which is my first year, and that year left an indelible imprint, is Bill Bradbury. The legislature couldn't do it. In fact, Democrats prevented a gerrymandering scheme from going through, and Bill Bradbury stepped up and put through a plan that um, stayed into law. And in 2004, Democrats recaptured the state house. In 2006, Democrats recaptured the legislature. And Bill Bradbury is helping me in my campaign. He's, he's endorsing me. I've known him for many, many years, long before I got in the legislature. And he's just a terrific guy. So that would be the first one. But it did leave an indelible impression on me. It was my first term. And uh, had the Democrats... Uh, not prevented that that plan from going through in 2001. Oregon would be like Wisconsin, North Carolina, Texas, with these plans that uh, were challenged in court and knocked around in courts for literally decades. Um, so that that put redistricting on my mental radar. But this time you're not so going to be blocking a bad Republican plan. 
this point, no. you're, you're either not going to have to mess with it because it'll get done before you, right? And if I got the year wrong before, it would have been 1990 when Keesling did it, right? Uh, and then you, I guess you, so. Yeah. Or 1991, and then 2011 well, was when uh, was when it happened when I was in legislature. Chris Garrett and others right. wrote the plan, and but the, it legisla- might not, the legislature got the job done, so the Secretary of State didn't have to. Yeah, so it'd probably be you. It'd probably be either you facing. It'd probably be you either facing a plan that just got done and you didn't have to mess with it. That's the position Kate was in uh, nine years ago. Kate Brown was in nine years ago. Or uh, it, if the Republicans were able to pick up a chamber, uh, you'd end up having to break the tie and you'd write a plan. Uh, what would be... I'm already, I'm already looking at it. I mean, it's, it's likely Oregon's going to get a sixth congressional seat. Yeah. And that's going to really alter the congressional lines out there. And already people in these congressional offices are already... Um, you know, planning and scheming and talking about, you know, what would you do to the DeFazio district? How would this <laughs> Boy, affect the What would you do to the DeFazio <laughs> district? <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, that gives you, you know, most Oregonians, uh, this is such an obscure thing to most people, but it's really very, very critical. And politicos and both sides, all sides, are, are really keenly uh, interested in doing this. For my mind, I want to do something that doesn't screw over the Democrats, but is, but is fair. And um, I think that's what we need. And I understand the law with uh, communities of interest, transportation corridors, and geography. There's certain criteria we have to follow. And I think you need someone who um, is going to withstand the pressure from every corner of the state and come through with a plan that is fair. A fair plan that doesn't uh, have any salamander-shaped districts. That's right. I I don't know that you're going to answer this question, but I want to ask it anyway. Because I know a lot of people do really care about the composition of the United States Congress. I am one of them. And I also recognize that if we're in a state, and one of my concerns about Obama's push about redistricting reform and his attorney general's, former attorney general's push on redistricting reform, is that if it's only Democratic states who listen to them. And in the current world, that one could imagine only Democratic states might listen to Eric Holder. And, and Democratic states become... Uh, redistricted by commissions, etc. But red states become gerrymandered even worse, and purplish states get gerrymandered red, that you have a Congress that's even less representative of the American population than the one we have now. Where you have, as we have right now, a situation where in every single congressional election for a while, the Democratic candidates in total have had substantially more votes than the Republicans, but in all but the last one, the Republicans still controlled the legislature. And I say this also as a small-D Democrat and also care about a process that makes democracy work. How do you feel about the proposal supported by League of Women Voters and others to move to a commission to resolve uh, redistricting? Well, I've been looking at those models of commission redistricting ideas and concepts uh, for many years. And I think there are some out there that, uh, you know, that could work. But right now, uh, the Constitution says the legislature shall do it. And in 2011, I worked hard on that plan, and and the legislature did do it. It was a bipartisan redistricting plan. It passed. And so, number one, I would say uh, Oregon doesn't have any gerrymandering seats. There's no problems, nothing that anybody can point to and say, see, this is bad. I mean, we've just never had that, at least not in the last 20 years. And so that's number one. I don't see the problem that we're trying to fix. And number two, when I look at the specifics of this plan, uh, it looks pretty complicated in terms of who would be on it. You can't have a history in politics. And, um, and I don't see an accountability for these 
commission members if something goes wrong. And all of that language would go into the Oregon Constitution, all of that clunky language. So uh, I'm not on board. Um, maybe down the road we can, we can look at a, at a commission structure, of, you know, at, see how 2021 goes. But right now I'm sticking with what we have in the Constitution because uh, we don't have any problems that require uh, attention. Of all of the things out there that we do need to fix, I wouldn't put this in the top ten. Uh, One of the things I would put in the top ten I'm announcing today, and that's creating a new elections cybersecurity office within the Secretary of State to get at this uh, disturbing problem of disinformation that's, that has obviously crept up in our country, but it also crept up in Oregon in, in 2018. And I think uh, the next Secretary of State needs to get out in front of that problem um, for all kinds of obvious reasons. But in 2018, we had... Uh, social media posts that said in one case uh, people were posting that uh, ballots uh, were already being counted in Morrow County and they weren't. Another one said it's too late to send your uh, ballots in and it wasn't. And the Secretary of State's office had no capacity to uh, turn those uh, disinformation campaigns around. They had a couple people working the phones in the office in Salem, which is like two people in the backyard trying to put out a, a force fire. What so would need to, to get in front of this. What would an election cybersecurity outfit within the Secretary of State's office look like and do? And let me preface it with this. One of the challenges it has seemed to me in policing elections is that the real ne'er-do-well kind of stuff happens towards the very end of the election. And then after the election, you go through some sort of administrative process or a court process, and it seems like either the administrative process or the court process is loath to disrupt the result of the election. How does how do you actually imagine that working? I'm fascinated by this. Yeah, uh, well, that's a good point on those things. But I think if you get out in front of it, you set up like your own sort of, uh, oh, for lack of a better phrase, truth squad. You have uh, websites and your own social media posts that say, here's what's real. And you tell people, if you see something, you go here, and here's when the ballots are out. Here's, here's when um, votes are being counted, and uh, this rumor is not true, and this is the, the real place. And it's really necessary now, Jefferson, because of the sort of downward spiral in mainstream journalism. There are fewer and fewer reporters and news outlets that are uh, reporting on, on what is true and, and what is not. And so in the absence of that, that uh, journalism, uh, you see these disinformation campaigns popping up, creating all kinds of problems, and I just think we have to get out in front of that and be proactive and say, folks, here's where you need to go if you want the truth about what's really happening in the elections. When you were at KTU, describe the difference, or even prior to that, like go to the previous century, which wasn't that long ago, but when you were a, <laughs> when, when you were a journalist, compare what the basement of the Capitol building was like and the, where the denizens of that floor dwelled where journalists had offices compare what that was like then compared to what it's like now yes that's right whenever i would go down to the capitol it was overwhelming in the press room in fact during the time i was in the news i think they expanded it to to, to house more and more people but um all of the the print uh out publications had three or four people down there tv stations all had an office and uh, it was a bustling uh, activity. So you'd and go I down there, there'd be a bunch of energy, a bunch of people writing, getting ready to write, getting ready to go on TV. 
Yeah, yeah, the Oregonian, I think they had a reporter for the House, one for the Senate, one for the governor, one covering all the state agencies, and, you know, it was like a, a, a platoon system down there, and I always felt outgunned by, by these guys. But and if you, if, you, if, you had, if you had a press release, if you had a press release, you would have to take a whole bunch of copies and you give everybody a copy of that press release, and you knew that that press release was going to get attention. That's right, and that was before the... Uh, Internet really fired up, and it was before we had a thousand cable stations. And those two forces have sucked most of the red revenue out of uh, local media, TV stations, and print. And uh, it's just never really come back. And, and so, so, what does it look the like there now? Just des- yeah, describe the basement now, as compared to before. You go down there; it's bustling. There's folks write, writing. I imagine them typing on loud keyboards, but I'm sure they had computers then. And and compare that scene to when you're feeling outgunned because everybody's got you know multiple reporters. Compare that scene to when you go down there now. There's two or three people. Yeah, uh, you have public radio guy and a couple people who. who who are up from uh, downstate or just make their uh, office there. Um, but we're in a whole new era now. And um, I think a lot of uh, politicos and candidates just bypass the press. It's like, hey, thanks, but I'm just going to go on my own news feed and go on, and Twitter, and I don't really need to bother with you anymore. Not, nothing personal, but you just don't have the listenership or the viewership or the readership anymore. Um, but as a trained journalist, I, not a day goes by that I don't worry about journalism. And um, I, just, I just hope we can somehow turn that around. Uh, I've subscribed to several papers that I don't really uh, look at very often just because I want to just support reporters and, and, and journalism. And I hope we get back to a day where we have uh, the hustling, bustling basement in the Capitol press room, but also in, in, the, uh, in the city councils of, of all of our our cities and towns and the local news you know beaverton for example out near where i live uh is a pretty big suburb i mean they have a giant budget i think it's five or six hundred million dollars and there's no press coverage there anymore at a time when you know city councilors might be might have a brother-in-law who owns the property where they may or may not build a highway exchange you know you need that watchdog journalism and it really saddens me and it troubles me that we don't have what we used to have. And how would you then fashion this office? Say more about how you would fashion the cybersecurity office in such a way, because it wouldn't be a newspaper. Uh, how would you make sure that information got to people if what it did was, uh, was publish information? Or how would it enforce rules? And how would you make sure that's being done not to benefit a political power operation, but instead or primarily to promote truth? Uh, that's a good question. I, uh, I, it wouldn't be done to promote anybody. It would be uh, a, a website or Facebook post or a combination to simply state facts about the election. Here's where you vote. Here's where it. Very basic information, and it would fight against rumors. And, and that's the question. How do you fight against the, the rumors? That's my question. How, how do you? What do you imagine the tools being to? And maybe you create this thing and you ask that thing to figure out how to do it. But what are your initial hypotheses of how to fight against false rumors and fake news? Well, if you see something, the, the ballots are already being counted in Morrow County. Um, you you make sure that you get out there and say, not true. Ballots will be counted at eight p.m. on election night. 
That's and good. I think just a reliable source. This is like, um, well, what does Dad say about this? And you go to Dad, and Dad says, no, it's not true. How, how do you how do you make sure that when you say you're going to let people know, how do you make sure that they do know? Are you are you for example, one one possibility that might scare people, but would be that if you are going to have attachment to the internet in Oregon. You have to be on the Secretary of State's wavelength, so when the Secretary of State sends out a message, you get it, whether you want it or not. Now, that might scare people, but that that would be one thing that you might actually need to do to be sure that people heard. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I think there's there's a variety of, of different ways. And by the way, this is not you know a, a new, brilliant thought of mine. This is uh, Finland is is doing this. A lot of countries. Um, have been dealing with misinformation and disinformation campaigns for a long time before us. And so um, there unfortunately is developing this cottage industry of security experts and security methods to uh, get out in front of this, which I think is the only way to get there. If you if you wait until after afterwards and you try to do it, as you mentioned, Jefferson, after the election, it's too late. So I just think we need to be proactive. Uh, the Secretary of State's office does have this thing known as a civics uh, toolkit that engages young people, and I would build on that as well. Um, but uh, we need to get out in front of this. It is much more troublesome, at least to me, than something like uh, commissions on redistricting. This is important, and I think the Secretary of State should lead the way in this, this new age, this new reality that we're in. The other major candidates in the Democratic primary, Jamie McLeod Skinner, who ran for Congress in the previous election in Eastern Oregon, and Jennifer Williamson, uh, recently stepped aside state representative. How do you primarily differentiate yourself from those other candidates? Well, uh, two ways. One, uh, I think I've got uh, much, much more experience and deeper experience than any of the candidates. Uh, and not only that, in my experience, I have had some major accomplishments of which I'm very proud. Moving to full day kindergarten from half day is now paying off dividends. And that was a hard bill to get through. I think you were down there, Jefferson, when we finally got it through. And then importantly, finally got the money to pay for it. The Oregon Promise, which provides free community college to Oregon high school graduates, has been a game changer in this state for thousands and thousands of families we got about 10,000 kids in community colleges now every year. This is our fifth year, and more than a third of them are first-time going to college families. They come from families that have never experienced college culture. And finally, the Student Success Act that passed in 2019, I think, was a generational uh, measure that came through and, uh, like I say, righted the ship from what happened in the 1990s. So I think my difference is I've got experience to get the job done, and if you want to gauge how someone will perform in the future, I think you should look at how they performed in the past. So that's one differentiation. The other one is I'm the only candidate that's talking about ideas and proposals such as cybersecurity, um, ranked choice voting, same-day registration, um, an ombudsman for child care, foster care, um, addiction services audit. So I've got seven or eight um, ideas and proposals that are very significant that would overhaul this office and restore it to some prominence and, and make some changes. And no one else is doing that, and it's very important to me that I'm the candidate that has these policy ideas, win, lose, or draw. I think these policy ideas are what this campaign should be about, and, and you could you know disagree if you don't like ranked choice voting or, or whatever, that's good, but I think that's what we should be campaigning on, and that's what I hope this race is decided on, as opposed to who has 
uh, who's raised the most money and who's you know uh, going to win this uh, beauty contest and and all of those uh, other uh, factors that are really not relevant to the requirements of this office. A week a week from today, you are going to be muzzled in your ability to raise money for a month. Uh, Jennifer Williamson resigned from the legislatures to avoid that muzzle. Uh, the other major candidate has, is, is not in public office and has no problem. What are the... I'm guessing that you must have at least considered whether or not that was a good idea for you to do that. Comment on on that and why you decided to stick with it and what, if any, advantage you think that gives one way or the other. Well, um, I didn't want to quit. I'm not a quitter. People in the Senate district sent me down for one term. I'm going to stay there. More important than that is we have to pass a carbon bill in the February session, and I'm committed to that, and um, I'm, I'm part of the team that's going to meetings and, and trying to get a, a deal together so we can pass something without the Republicans walking out, and that is more important to me than uh, raising money. Uh, fundraising can take a back seat for a while until we get this other job that I was elected to work on done. When does your state Senate term start and finish? I'm out after uh, my this, this will be the final year of my term. So that does make it a more significant, and I will acknowledge I had a similar decision and I made the same decision you made. But it's a different thing. Like you're actually uh, giving up a month of fundraising is a significant decision in this scope of the campaign. If you had two years more left in your state senator, well, people could view it as, well, he's sort of hedging his bets. He wants to keep a Senate seat. He can run for Secretary of State and stay in the state Senate. But that's not the case here. You are filling out your term at some potential cost. Any political consultants told you you're being a dum-dum? They told me I was a dum-dum. <laughs> yeah, um, I've, I've, uh, I'm up or out. Uh, I don't always take the advice of the, the consultants. Um, as, as you know, these policy ideas. When I talk about cybersecurity, they kind of humor me and they say, "Well, okay, fine, you can do these things, but don't spend a lot of time on them." And so uh, we're trying to run. Uh, we call it the un campaign. Uh, do things a little bit different. Like God forbid, actually talk about policies and and ideas uh, instead of a hundred percent focus on money. Well, let's talk so, about a couple ideas then. You brought up ranked choice voting. How would you get yeah. that done, and which method would you use? I know that Mark Fronmeyer and others, been, and Sarah Wolf slash Sarah Wolk, yeah. has been pushing for star voting, essentially doing it like Yelp, where you give five stars or nine stars the candidate you like best, one or zero stars the candidate you like worst. Uh, there are others straight up just rank one to five. The concern that I have with ranked choice voting, and I tend to lean in favor of whatever that's worth, uh, but my concern about it, or I should say the biggest counter-argument I've seen to ranked choice voting is it complexifies the process and might promote a dip, might lead to a dip in voter participation. It looks like in San Francisco even, that might have even happened. How do you address that? And would you, well, in, and would you in supporting ranked choice limit it to the primary, which I confess I strongly support, but not the general about which I have great doubts? Did you just comment on that too? Well, okay, first, back up a second. Um, ranked choice voting is just what it says. You you have three or four candidates. You can uh, rank them as you vote. Instead of yes or no to one person, you go one, two, three, four. And that has worked uh, in, I think, 50 different 
uh, local governments and entities around the country, including the state of Maine, which does it for its federal elections. And it's worked well. And this is not a, an, an innovative, novel idea. This is um, not the flavor of the month. Australia has been doing ranked choice voting for 100 years. And so uh, there is, granted, a little learning speed bump there. And I went through that. But once you get past that, you think, like I did, I thought we should have been doing this 20 years ago. And what pulled me over um, was that it almost totally eliminates negative campaigning. I mean, anybody that sat through those TV ads and was subjected to that stuff in the last election knows how great that would be if we didn't have negative campaigning. It eliminates and negative that, campaigning because people don't want to be the least favored of the supporters who they go after. Right. You want to, you want to, if you, if you, if you can't get uh, the, the people voting for you in the first place, you want to get those second place votes of your opponents. So you're not going to trash out your opponents. Plus, you're going to do more outreach beyond your base. You don't need to just go to your 30 percent base. You, you have to you have to go to everybody. And that results in more positive campaigns, more outreach campaigns. And it also results in nobody's a spoiler anymore. And it's not the lesser of two evils. So I really like that component. I have talked to Mark Fronmeyer and Sarah, and they were really smart people about star voting. And it's in, I want to say, kind of a variation of ranked choice voting. But yeah. either one is a huge improvement over our kind of winner-take-all approach now. Uh, of all places, Benton County, the voters in Benton County yeah. adopted ranked choice voting in 2016. And this will be their first election cycle where they're going to implement ranked choice voting. They're going to do it this year. And so it'll be interesting to see how, how they do. Um, and you as, don't think it causes a dip. You don't think it reduces voter turnout. Or if you do, you think that's just a blip until we've gotten to learn it and probably doesn't take 100 years to learn it. Well, I, it hasn't reduced voter turnout in other places. In fact, it's, it's had uh, just the opposite effect. Um, you know, it may be, it feels a little bit like when I was a young guy, um, uh, I guess this was in the 90s as a reporter, uh, vote by mail was just starting. And there were very skeptical people. Because, oh, no, the post office will lose the mail. That's what we're People mail in 10 ballots at a time. This will never work. But we gradually uh, accepted it, county by county, kind of some local elections, experimented with it. It grew. And in 2001, uh, we adopted it as a statewide method of voting. And now, today, vote by mail is arguably the most popular thing that state government does. And you're not concerned that rank choice. You're not concerned that rank choice voting would lead to more milk toast candidates. Candidates who are so afraid of offending the supporters of another candidate that they wouldn't do enough to differentiate themselves, or push bold uh, enough or challenging I, enough ideas that actually went against the status quo. No, I don't. I mean, that just hasn't happened in the places that have, have done that done this already. Maine, uh, San Francisco. Um, you know, it could, and uh, there's probably no method that's going to eliminate. You know certain things, uh, behaviors and poor candidates, that sort of thing. But um, uh, I think it's, it's, a, it's a conversation that the Secretary of State should lead, and maybe uh, uh, voters you know, will, will see it and say no thanks, or maybe it's too complex for average people to uh, get their hands around and brains around. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's something we should try to get rid of this uh, negative campaigning that has dominated all of the statewide races in the last couple of election cycles. It just is not a dialogue. It's not a conversation. Nobody's talking about ideas or proposals. Nobody's having that civil yeah. debate. They're just saying, well, Kate Brown isn't telling the truth. Well, Newt Bowler's not telling the truth. 
I mean, that doesn't get any people tune those out. It's just a waste of time. It's a waste of money. I like it when when we see these Democratic candidates, uh, presidential candidates debating. Sometimes they're arguing. But when they're arguing, I like when they say, okay, we need Medicare for all. No, we need the Obama plan. You know, that's good. That's healthy. That's what we should be doing. I actually would have liked, Pop likes the idea of doing it in a primary, doesn't like the idea of doing it in a general. I actually would have liked to see it, even just that the DNC had done ranked choice voting to decide, ranked choice polling to decide which candidates were going to stay in the debates. So you then a Cory Booker and a Kamala Harris might outlast uh, Marianne Williamson or an Andrew Yang. The other one you said, though, was same-day voter registration, and I'll again acknowledge I'm an enormous supporter of that. But for that, you've got to put that on the ballot. Legislature can't just do that. I mean, they could refer it to the ballot. What would be the plan to implement same-day voter registration? Yes, I would, uh, I would lead the uh, effort to get the legislature to refer it to the ballot. Um, again, this isn't a, a novel idea. There's about 20 states who have done this. Uh, recently, and in each one of those states, voter participation has increased. And that's just really a, a nothing more than technology. Anybody that's ever bought anything on Amazon knows that you can do these document checks, security checks, ID checks instantaneously. And we don't need 21 days now. Maybe we did 35 years ago when people were mailing documents back and forth. Uh, but you can uh, register online currently. Uh, it's just that you don't we just don't need to uh, take 21 days and, and cut people off before the election, because what happens is this this often hurts working people who are not paying attention to an election until a couple of weeks before the election. And then when they go to register, they're told you're too late. So I think that would be just a good government improvement for our state. And the background, but you're right. It would it would require a, a constitutional vote. Yeah, the background on here is when Norma Paulus was Secretary of State, and the Rajneeshis uh, was it Elk? Uh, was that the town, Elk, Oregon? When the Rajneeshis uh, went in, <laughs> wrong, and, wrong mammal, a- antelope. Antelope. Okay, forgive me. <laughs> you had was the, it bison. You knew it was an animal of some kind <laughs> with <Bovine>. horns. <laughs> <laughs> Unicorn. When uh, when the Rajneeshis packed the ballots, all registered quickly, and then uh, ended up try, uh, using that to win elections. Neuropolis used that as a rationale to put into place the 21-day prior requirement for voter registration, which ends up being somewhat absurd for people who are just starting, particularly young people, who start paying attention to the election towards the end of the election, and oops, now it's a little bit too late. But what is the uh, what is the magnitude of that problem now? What's the delta on voter participation we might see in Oregon now that we have automatic voter registration? Who are the folks who are left out in those last 21 days? Well, uh, I don't know if there's empirical evidence on this, but um, the, the conventional thinking is they're working people, people that are just not tuned in, that don't think about elections like we do uh, 24-7. They, they just start paying attention you know, two or three weeks beforehand. And so if they've moved or uh, had a change of address, they go to uh, register and they find out they're, they're closed out because of the 21-day cutoff. What's the path to victory here? I think that I, I still want to ask Jane McLeod Skinner her path to victory. I think I understand Jennifer Williamson's path to victory. It is to be she was in leadership in the in the state house. She has been very much kind of a mainstream uh, Democrat. Not to say that you haven't been a mainstream Democrat, but it has seemed like there have been more times. Feel free to challenge this premise, but more times that you have wanted to reach beyond the Democratic Party, qua party, uh, in your policy making, your policy priorities, even in your voting record, uh, and 
that uh, her path to power, I think, is, you know, when, is a traditional Democrat's path to power, win labor endorsements, win feminist endorsements, uh, maybe environmental endorsements, and then get that and then raise a bunch of money and win the nomination. Is your path at all different from hers? Well, you know, when you look at the accomplishments that I've talked about, uh, free community college for Oregon high school graduates feels like a pretty progressive democratic idea. The Student Success Act, which raised uh, taxes on corporations, cut income taxes for the lowest brackets on Oregonians, and put the proceeds into schools, that feels like a pretty progressive democratic idea. So I'm not one into labels, uh, um, but I, I think um, I'm a Democrat because of the principles and the values that the Democrats stand for. And part of my M.O. in operating down there, and the reason I think I've been able to pass a lot of big bills, is because I do talk to people. I get along with people. This was a business tax last year, but I had businesses in my office every single day. And I didn't demonize them. I didn't uh, uh, criticize them. Uh, I worked with them. Because essentially they said, okay, we know we're going to have to pay this modest tax here. We just Can you work with us to get the technical language right so we can make this work? And I did. We had bankers in almost every week because we needed to get the technical language right. They're still going to pay the tax, but their operations are different. If you make a $10,000 deposit in the bank, well, that's not a $10,000 sale that you should pay a tax on. So, you know, we needed uh, we needed to make sure their, the language worked for them. Car dealers wanted language that said, the devil made us do it on this tax. And you know what? I said, that's fine. They're still going to pay it. The money's still going to come in. And if that's what we do to establish goodwill, then that's what we're going to do. And guess what happened? Under our referendum law, where uh, everybody assumed this bill was going to be referred to the ballot, it didn't. And that didn't happen by accident. It's because we convinced business to stand down and not fight this bill. And had they referred this to the ballot, the election would have been last week. So let that sink in for a second, guys. We would have had this divisive ballot measure. And you think that one of the reasons that didn't happen was not just because there was a greater show of strength by the people who would have passed it, but because of work that folks did, and I think you're saying work that you did, to make sure that some of the potential opponents were actually heard and some of their stuff was actually included. I, I know that's true. I know that's true. And that was very important to me, and I savored that all through the holidays because I know had there been a ballot measure coming up, we would have been subjected to those beautiful political ads over the holiday season, and none of that happened. The law is in effect. The tax started January 1st, and we're all going to go forward with this, uh, trying to get our schools back in the shape to the places where they were when uh, you were growing up in, 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 in these schools, uh, Jefferson. And, and so uh, you're right. I do talk to people. I talk to Republicans. I talk to labor folks. I talk to business guys. And I'm respectful, and I think that has served me well in getting bills passed through the legislature. I think that will serve me well in the future. Um, I know how that capital works. I know how to get things through. And, you know, it seems pretty standard, but I think being respectful to others, working with people is, is kind of the way you do it. There are at least two things we got to get to. We only have a few more minutes. One is the land board, and the other is money and politics. We had a text come in from a listener who wanted to say thank you for your support on land use legislation. Anything that differentiates you from Jamie McLeod Skinner, Jennifer Williamson, 
in your seat on the state land board. And for folks who are new to this stuff, an on-ramp state land board, is, the Secretary of State is one of the members of that, and they make decisions with what happens with state lands. And some of that stuff, like with Elliott Forest, ends up being pretty significant. Any any way that you think you should be trusted more than them on the state land board? And it's important for people to understand that there are three people on that board, and your vote is just as important as the governor's. Well, I think the one thing that's missing from the land board is a guideline, uh, a North Star, on what to do with assets in the common school fund. What should that North Star be? Well, I think there should be a a process, a public process, to say, okay, um, we value these assets on these principles. They should create jobs, or they should be there for recreation, or they should just be there for the scenery, uh, because most endowments i've served on foundations uh when you have an asset that's not performing you dump it the ibm stock hasn't been uh doing well so we'll dump it we'll buy something else the shopping mall isn't working anymore so we'll sell it um but in the land board when your assets are not that liquid and they include properties um sometimes these decisions uh just come up and all of a sudden everybody's paralyzed because they don't know what to do and that's what happened with the elliot the land board uh, doesn't have a process to say, well, um, this is an heirloom property. It's, it's a treasure, so we can't sell it. Or it's not a treasure, so we can sell it. Just a month ago, the land board voted to sell 300 acres over in Bend. So uh, it could be developed and, and subdivisions built on it. And that was like a no-brainer. There was no controversy um, because the facts just kind of suggested that would be a smart thing to do. But there was there was no guiding principles there. There was no sort of constitution. It just uh, seemed like something that, that should be done. When they got to the Elliott Forest, nobody knew what to do because nobody knew whether that's, uh, you know, educators argued that you should sell it because this is actually a, a fund that, that throws off money to schools. And so, therefore, if you don't sell it, um, um, you're going to be shortchanging kids. Um, and, of course, Enviro said, uh, no, you can't sell the Elliott Forest. So nobody knew what to do. And in the end, we ended up with kind of a, a plan that only politicians could dream up, with is, which is the state is going to sell the Elliott to itself uh, for about, I don't know, a third of the money that was, that was first talked about. And um, some of the rules on how that's going to work with Oregon State University Forestry School um, some of those rules haven't even been figured out yet. And, you know, if it would have been me, I would have said, no, let's just not sell it, period. And, uh, but anyway, that's. But, no, but I'd say, I want to say, I want to say, there's a, a nerdy response, but having a clarified set of criteria, a set of principles upon which the land board operates, uh, that's one of the most sensible answers I've yet. That is the most sensible land board answer I have yet to hear, obviously. It could, any someone could say it, and it could be a dodge. That we, who knows what those criteria might be? But I want to get to money in politics. How much do you think this race is going to cost you? Uh, I know that reaching the whole state is a big deal, and Secretary of State is not as high profile a race as Governor, to be clear, or U.S. Senate, but really not even Congress or Mayor. There's not as many people who pay attention to what's happening in Secretary of State's race, and in order to get their attention, very often you got to buy it. What's this race going to cost? How are you going to get the money? Well, I don't know that I, I, I don't know that I can give you a, a number. I don't know that that's, uh, I, you know, we're in a new era now of uh, different campaigning. Everybody's using social media, and I think uh, there's certain things you can't put a value on. I mean, we're just scrapping. We're just 
going out and meeting people. Oh, there's going to be eight people at this place. Good, we'll go over there and shake hands. There's going to be 10 people here. Okay, we'll go there too. I'm having eggs and issues breakfasts every single Saturday morning at a different place. And every time we do that, we have 15 people show up and we hand them a yard sign and it's a good discussion. We talk about ranked choice voting. So I think it's a lot of that old school stuff. And I wish there was some secret way or some uh, genius uh, consultant to say, here's, here's how you win um, in, a, in an easy way. You don't have to spend much money. You don't have to drive through every uh, corner of the state. But that doesn't exist. And I know the other candidates are working hard. Uh, last month, we decided Curry County Democrats are having a meeting, and, and we thought we should go down there. Yes, Curry County. There are some Democrats down there. And uh, I said, man, that's a long ways to go. And uh, the guy that's working with me said, yeah, but you'll be the only one down there. They'll look good. We'll take pictures. Um, so we drive down there, and it's six hours. And we get there, and there's Jamie. She's, she's there, too. So, I mean, that gives you an idea of how I think all the candidates are scrapping for votes here and there. And that's that's what I'm doing. Uh, money will be a part of it. But uh, this is a this is a primary with uh, four good candidates and uh, everybody's working hard. And uh, I think it's just a little bit old school. What should the campaign contribution limits be in Oregon if the referred initiative passes? or the initial referral passes, the legislature can have to make that decision unless there's another ballot measure to impose limits. What should those limits be? I think I think they should be reasonable. I'm not married to a number. Um, earlier in the campaign, a couple, Jamie and I tried to get all of the candidates to agree to a, a campaign finance limits, and we agreed that limit would be $500 for individuals, 1000 from organizations across the board. And so, but Jennifer wouldn't go along with that. So we, you have to have everybody in. So did she give her rationale to you? No, you'd have to ask her about that. I did. Uh, and we'll, we'll be publishing all of these so people can go listen to each of them. I had a good conversation yeah. with uh, former Representative Williamson. Should the mayor, should Mayor Ted Wheeler have abided? 87%, a little over 87% of Portlanders voted in favor of $500 limits in city council races. Uh, the uh, right now that is up to a court challenge because essentially the Scalia view of the uh, of money in politics is somehow been in, has infected the Oregon Constitution. Do you think that the Portland mayor should have abided by can't, when he was running for re-election should have abided by those city limits? Jefferson, you want me to get into uh, Portland city politics? No, I want you. I think that's a legit question because, as Secretary of State, you might even have to rule on whether something, whether when a city uh, is uh, when a city imposes a limit, and there's a question about the enforcement of that limit. The view of the Secretary of State seems relevant. Uh, I think he should have followed the rules that exist. Um, I, I know we have this big, uh, important ballot measure in, in November that will change the Constitution to allow limits to be set so they can't be thrown out by the courts every every couple of years. I was the chief sponsor of that referral measure, so I, I feel very strongly about this. The first bill on the first day of my first term that I ever introduced was this bill, campaign finance reform. So uh, you've got to follow the rules, but if there are no rules, then I think you have to do what you can to do to be competitive. Well, I had an election four years ago uh, against a guy who spent $500,000 of his own money. And so I could have 
folded my my yeah. hands and said, no, I'm I'm not going to take corporate money. I'm only going to take a hundred dollar, sure. no more than hundred dollar contributions or whatever. Uh, and I wouldn't have won. I would have lost. Sure, but the mayor. Be- but I don't think the mayor's problem is going to be money. I think the mayor will have the biggest name recognition. I think the mayor would have been able to uh, would have been able to raise the money, which is one of the reasons I think it's interesting. But it is in fact deciding on what the rules are that I find interesting. Right? If the city passes it, but then. A court rules that on the county case, not on the city case, that the county rules aren't to be enforced. Then, how do you lead, right? For instance, would if there had been a state initiative passed, right? Well, anyway, you've you've given your answer, and I appreciate it. I know you've already been really generous with your time. Anything I should have asked you that oh, I didn't? Wait, 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 wait! You can't ask that question yet because I got a question I got to ask. <laughs> the King County Conservation District consists of everybody in King County, approximately, almost everybody, approximately 1.2 million voters. They, in their last election, 3,500 people voted out of that 1.2 million. The reason being that the conservation district has a budget of about 7 million bucks, and if they mailed the a ballot to every one of the voters, they would be eating up 15% of their entire budget. So this year, starting today, you can vote online. And I'm wondering how you feel about that. Do you think that's a, a trend? Do you think that's something that should be limited to a jurisdiction that has a problem like King County? Or, or is that where we're gonna go? I, I think it's a bad idea. Uh, all of the cybersecurity experts in the country uh, are saying, no, don't do it. We don't have the technology. It sounds like it would be cool and convenient to be able to vote on your smartphone. But uh, with the meddling, the technology that's going on now, I just uh, I wouldn't do it at all. In fact, you know, of all places uh, up in Washington, Jeff Bezos had his smartphone hacked by the Saudis. So... I don't think it's safe for elections, and it may be a technology out in the future, but uh, we're not ready to go there now. And I'm hoping in your answer to Jeff's question that he just made, in which he will now repeat, really want to hear your answer to that. Because of your journalistic background, you may really be able to help us in the questions we ask. Any question I should have asked you that I didn't? (laughs) Probably, but but, uh, I appreciate the discussion. Senator Mark Hass, candidate for Secretary of State, primary coming up soon, filing deadline in March, general election if there, if Mark Hass is to win that primary, well, whomever wins that primary, will be in November. Senator, thank you so much for your service to the state, and thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, guys. Take care. You're listening to XRM Jefferson Smith, 12 fatalities, hundreds wounded after protesters clashed in Iraq, anti-government protesters in Iraq have been active over the last three days. Activists said security forces have clashed with hundreds of protesters. Uh, that and more international news to be covered right now with our friend Tim Markroft, who has been apparently stuck on a train. You finally not stuck on your train? Yeah, uh, I've been on the same train for three weeks now. Uh, trains move slowly here in France, but you that's know, that's, that's what you get with socialism. And you... <laughs> but you get trains. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, we do have trains, lots of them. What do you want to cover? Uh, well, I was Is going Brexit to happen now. Is Brexit all over? Is it all Brexited? Is that all finished? Right. So, if you want to talk about Brexit, we can do that. Uh, Brexit, Brexit has started. Brexit Day 
is on the 31st of January. So by the next time we talk, the the UK will be officially no longer a part of the European Union. Except it's going to take a year to get the job done. So there is this planned transition period uh, until December 31st, 2020, where they're going to try to hammer out a trade deal, a series of trade deals with the EU that will not only cover trade itself, but also their uh, various interaction on shared programs for like military and surveillance questions, questions of intelligence, all of these services that were deeply integrated uh, as a part of the creation of the European Union um, are now going to have to be disintegrated. And um, boy, they have 11 months to do it. Uh, so we'll see how that goes. So Jeremy Corbyn's still the head of the Labor Party. Is that going to be? I thought he was not going to be the head of the Labor Party anymore. There is a current, there is a labor uh, contest right now going on to figure out who will be. We should know in the next couple of months. Who's the leftist you like? Um, you know, maybe maybe this is just uh, unless you don't want a leftist. This unless this, unless you've changed been, your. Uh, I haven't been following the labor the labor leadership contest, unfortunately, because. Uh, I've been. We got Stuck burned on by that one, so I think we're. Uh, most of us are stepping away a little. I'll know more by the next time we talk. Um, but and I by the way, the, cha- the challenge I have is whomever the Twitterati are saying it ought to be. I think they might be wrong because I think they're also influenced by ne'er-do-well forces. It's hard to trust the Twitterati in political primary conversations. I fear. <laughs> well, I don't. Uh, I don't necessarily disagree that it's a bad idea to get uh, get political guidance from Twitter. My twi- my my tinfoil right. hat is firmly ensconced atop my head. <laughs> I see that. What else do you want to talk about? On international political news, my good friend. It's well, good to hear your so voice. The, the 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 Wuhan coronavirus, uh, which your listeners may be aware of, it's is, not about um, the beer. Although if I were if I no. owned share, I, I would not want to be Corona beer right now. If you like, if there was something called the Coors virus or the Miller Lite virus, I think I'd not be very happy if I were Coors or Miller Lite. Uh, I agree, and I think that Corona is probably, um, uh, you know, lobbying to change them, the name of the virus. Heavily, I would, if I were them, I would be investing heavily in uh, um, public health donations to try to get this thing resolved. Zima uh, virus. Nobody'd care about that. Go on. I'm sorry. I'm being a dumb dumb. It is. It is uh, getting. Um, it is getting the attention of the Chinese government. The about 57 million people worth of, uh, of cities, so about 15 cities in China, have been quarantined to greater or lesser degrees. The city of Wuhan itself, right smack dab in the middle of China, uh, where the virus was first observed, has been fully quarantined, and all of this is leading up in the lead-up to the uh, Chinese Lunar Festival, which is part of the New Year's celebrations. I just spoke to one of my classmates here who spent a year uh, living in China as part of her foreign language studies, and she said that it is it is a human migration like you have never seen. Uh, it is it's the largest human migration in history every year. Hundreds and hundreds of millions of people moving really? to go see their families. You know, like people do on Christmas, oh, uh, but also taking a week off and going in in the countryside. Uh, the movement of people is incredible, and that's not great uh, for a situation. No, of, that's um, that's we're all going to die. Outbreak. That's not good news. They're gonna, they're, they're gonna, everybody's gonna catch it unless they don't figure out what are they gonna do about that. Are they canceling the holiday? Are they, they making everybody it. asking everybody to wash their hands? What are they doing? 
Well, they've canceled the holiday, basically. All of the major f- public celebrations of the Lunar Festival have been canceled and no been put off to some future date. They're going to ex- and they're going to do it just on a different day this year and hoping that that will get everyone uh, playing the game. Um, if, you, if you compare this to the SARS outbreak in the 2000s, um, the Chinese government is certainly being a lot more active and sharing a lot more information with the World Health Organization than they did last time. So well, that's good. Uh, it's taking it more seriously. Uh, and so we can hope that this is not going to be a, um, a, a pandemic proportions thing in China. As far as um, fears of international spread, considering the places where most of the Chinese tourists go to and come from and people who come to China as tourists, all of those places have really good public health infrastructures, including the United States. And so it seems like um, pretty unlikely that fears that you're seeing online of, of a giant pandemic spread in Europe and North America is very likely at all, uh, because the World Health Organization and all of the health bodies in the individual countries are taking this very seriously. So overall, I would say this is an example of a relatively competent handling of a very serious outbreak um, by public health authorities. If the coronavirus had happened in the United States while Barack Obama was president, Mitch McConnell was head of the Senate, first of all, I'm relatively confident there would have been a motion in the Senate that may have passed the Senate to call it the Obama virus. Second of all, if Obama tried to cancel Christmas to keep it spread, I can only imagine the success of that in Mitch McConnell's Senate. Uh, Anything else you want to say to us, good friend? Uh, Yeah, um, I heard that Oregon is going to be doing experiments with online voting. That's a crazy, terrible idea. I can't can't believe it. I'd never heard of this before. No, it wasn't Oregon. It's Washington. King County is Seattle. Washington. Okay, sorry. Still, what what we have in the United States is we have like Oregon's a state, but there's 49 other ones, and one of the ones to the north is called Washington, which is confusing to some people because it's also the name of our capital, and the way people keep that straight is by calling that one D.C. at the end. Uh, is is that one on the flag, or is that one of the ones that's not considered? That's a real the one state? that doesn't get representation. Some would say it doesn't get representation that. because of historical reasons. Others would say it's just racism. And you know, they're both right. Racism both right. is also historical reasons. Fair point. Uh, what, how much attention is being paid to what the International Court of Justice is telling Myanmar? Um, I haven't followed the story intensely, I'll admit. What do you want to tell me about it? Well, we got we got to talk about that. Why don't you look it up? We got to talk about that next week because we still got to do Dad Strong the Win. I got to do the Quick Six. So what I've got to say to you, my good friend, is you're listening to X-Ray FM, KXRY Portland, KQAC HD3 Portland, 107.1, 91.1 FM, streaming online everywhere at xray.fm. It's good to hear you, my friend. Good to hear you. Take care, Tim. And let's very quickly do the Quick Six. Now it is time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. I am Jefferson Smith. It's Monday, January 27th. Oregon Senate has scrapped its campaign finance committee. Senate President Peter Courtney from Salem is not bringing back the Chamber's campaign finance committee for the 2020 legislative session. The committee was the central forum for debates over what such limits might look like. Senator Jeff Golden, Democrat from Ashland, chaired the committee and said we need to get the discussion started on campaign finance limits. Now, any bill on campaign finance, including bills to make it worse, won't go through a campaign finance committee run by a campaign finance reformer, but will go through Senate leadership directly through the Rules Committee. A massive expansion of transit services on Southeast Division Street, the corridor connecting Gresham and Portland, is poised to begin TriMet. 
received $87 million from the federal government on Thursday to create a speedier bus service along the thoroughfare. The agency is set to start constructing new platforms for buses on the route by next week. Oregon union leaders say they will file legislation aimed at stopping legislative walkouts. Ballot initiative would threaten legislators who walk out with being tossed from office. According to Joe Basler, you've heard here on these airwaves, the proposed constitutional amendment would oust legislators who have at least 10 unexcused absences in a year. Republican state senators are outnumbered 18 to 12 Democratic majority in Oregon. Republicans staged two walkouts last year to stop the Senate from going into session and passing environmental legislation. Tillamook County fell victim to a cyber attack last Wednesday, taking down its computers and phones. The attack also disabled the city government's official website through Thursday. Former Multnomah County Commissioner Loretta Smith has formerly entered the race for city council and is pledged not to accept contributions above $250. And in 2019, 80% of Oregon high school seniors graduated on time, up from 72% just five years earlier. That is some good news. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. This is X-Ray. I'm Jeff. Well, Dad, as we wrap, it is time for a straw in the wind. And to mention that McMinnville got over 90% of their graduates. Straw in the wind. Goldman Sachs, that behemoth in New York that does IPOs, that is stock offerings, they have announced that they will refuse to handle any IPO unless that does not have in the company seeking the public money at least one woman on their board of directors. And that is a really significant straw in the wind. Well, Bob, we did it again. I love you, my friend. I love you, and we'll be back on Thursday. <laughs>